I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, welcome back to the King Culture Podcast. It's awesome to be together. Seth, it's good to see you, man. You uh, you haven't been around here, around the office, around the church very much the last few weeks. Tell us why. Well, you sometimes have to choose between being an absentee pastor or an absentee dad, and I chose to not be an absentee dad. That's a good decision. Yeah. I mean, not that I'm being absentee dad now. <laughs> I hope not. But baby Olivia was born one, two, 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 yeah. seven pounds, it's 19 easy to ounces. Remember. Yeah, that's a birthday. It'd be pretty good to remember. So she's two and a half weeks old right now. Yeah. And Taylor's doing well. She's doing well. Uh, and. Yeah, and, and you, I think, Seth, are the first recipient of an updated redemption policy over the last year. Uh, we moved the uh, paternity leave from three days to three weeks. Yeah. And uh, you've decided to kind of break up your last week and spread it out a little bit over the couple of weeks. But I, I just think, like, man, I, I want that, like, in Ret- arrears. Retroactive. <laughs> yeah, like, I could take 12 weeks off. That'd be amazing. That'd that be great. Be pretty nice. But uh, anyway, so congratulations on Olivia. And on that time off, and I know that that's not just, you know, you sitting around, but that's you, like, taking care of Jay, helping Taylor heal, you know, just loving your family, and I think that's important. Yeah, it's been great. I'm probably going to work about 30 hours a week the next month or so. Yeah. And I'm not going to, the main way I'm going to get rid of those hours is I'm not preaching till March, and I'm not doing any counseling. Okay. After Jay was born, I realized that no experience of me is better than a bad experience of me. (laughs) There's a couple of sleepless nights that I came in to do counseling and I was like, I'm making this worse. So are we signed up for the next hour for a bad experience of you on this podcast? I hope not. We can decide that afterwards. Okay. So we will be the judge. So, uh, Seth, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about heaven, hell, death, and dying. A lot of this was spurred on because our ask anything last month. We had a lot of questions about this topic. We decided to do a whole uh, episode just devoted to that kind of, I think we did two episodes. I think we might've done one without you. You might have. Yeah. I don't remember. I was going back in the archives. Yeah, we did two of them. And so, but there was one thing that just came up like it was by far the biggest category of things was this issue of heaven, hell, death, and dying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for great reasons, people care about it because you're dead for a lot longer than you're alive. You know, if you think about world history and you think about 70, 80 years, I mean, and I'm talking just in human terms here, being dead and being alive, most people spend a lot more time in the grave than they spend above the grave. And so if you're trying to consider a life well lived, what it means to be wise, what it means to spend your time well, you know, time's the one resource you don't get more of. You spend more money, you get more money, spend more time, it just goes away, you never get it back. I'm trying to invest my time correctly, morally, wisely, with eternal perspective. I need to think a lot more about my death than I need to think about my dying Mm -hmm. in my life. You spend very little time dying, a lot of time dead, and some time alive. Yeah. So it, it matters if you're trying yeah. to think about life. Well, and it's interesting when I think about heaven, especially, I think that might be one of those doctrines, one of those beliefs that almost every Christian might, would believe in. I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, th- there's stuff Christians disagree about and different traditions think and see different ways. Every Christian believes in heaven, but, but as I've found kind of, you know, being a pastor, it just seems like a lot of people also misunderstand it Yeah. and have a really kind of truncated, short kind of view of it so maybe let's start there is is give us kind of a give us an overview of right if i die right now what happens like give it kind of go in chronological order give me the sequence here's what's going to happen now you're not saying you know when it will all happen but what is going to happen for those who are followers of jesus trust in him have experienced the new birth uh, by the spirit when we die what happens so when the man on the cross who exercises faith in Jesus, is going to die. Jesus turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that word paradise there is the same word that the Greek Septuagint, which is a translation of the Hebrew in Genesis, uses for the word Eden. So today you'll be with me in Eden or paradise or what we tend to talk about is heaven. Uh, this idea that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is a... That's a saying, I think, from Paul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a... Uh, a a state of bliss separate from the body mm-hmm. uh, that we could call heaven. And that's what, when most people talk about heaven, that's what they think about. It is what happens to your consciousness when you die. You um, are with the Lord instantly. You are in an Edenic type state. 
the sickness and pain and death and dying, you're separate from it. But your body remains on earth. John Frame talks about one of the effects of the fall is the artificial temporary erosion of the body from the soul at death. Mm. That for the, the body and soul are united in all of life, but at death they are torn apart. And so the body's torn from the soul. And the soul goes to paradise or Eden or heaven. And so this would be what, like what Paul's talking about in Philippians 1, where he's kind of saying, you know, hey, I'm experiencing suffering, this persecution. The day of my departure might be near. Um, he says, I don't really know what I want more. You know, he says that, uh, you know, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yeah, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for yes. that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So whatever I do, I'm going <laughs> to you know, do it with the, the grace of God is kind of what he's saying. But So what you're talking about is that you know, he's going, I'd like to depart and be with Christ. That's this, like, you die right now, and the soul and the body separating from each other. Yeah, and so most of the time we talk about that dying and going to heaven, which I think is accurate, biblical, and it happens. So that's called life after death. We call that life after death. But then there's this phrase that a theologian that I like called N.T. Wright describes as life after life after death. Yeah. So there's life and there's life after death. Well, and that's important because for a lot of people, it just ends at life after at death. The end. You die, you go to heaven. End, end of the story. story. Yeah. And, and, and the Bible is actually saying there's life after life after death. Yeah. And so you live, then you die. There's life after death. And then there's life after life after death, which is when Jesus comes back, it makes all things new. So you don't leave history. You don't leave time. You just leave your body. But what happens is when, when Jesus comes back and is making all things new, that includes our bodies. Our bodies are renewed. Uh, even like when Jesus is raised from the dead, there's this similarity. Like he has wounds that can touch. So there's this kind of tension between continuity, discontinuity, how similar is his body to his previous body because they don't really recognize him, but they recognize his voice. They see his wounds. He looks kind of different. His glorified body is there. And so in life after life after death, this is when the whole creation is made new. All things are made well, and we're actually restored to like a fully denic state, meaning it's like a garden, but it's a city. This is the Revelation 21. So we'll actually spend life after life after death or eternity on the new creation, in bodies. It'll be just like our world, minus all the effects of sin, decay, and destruction, both systemically and individually. And that's life after life after death. And so that's the timeline. You have life, you have life after death, and then you have life after life after death, which is our eternal state, mm -hmm. which is a blessed renewal of our present, present creation. Yeah. So it's interesting, even as you say that, because I think if you were to go back into the first century and ask someone, do you believe in the resurrection? And then if you were to ask average American Christian right now, do you believe in the resurrection? They would answer that question thinking you were asking two totally different things. Yes. Right. Today, a Christian would be thinking, oh, do I believe in the resurrection? Yeah, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Yes. First century, what would they be thinking the question was? Yeah, this is a big, get, a big debate between the Jews, right? You had the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection, and you had Pharisees who did believe in a resurrection. And they weren't talking about the resurrection of the future Messiah, they're talking about us individuals, humans being resurrected. And so the Sadducees thought nothing happened when he died, whereas the Pharisees taught that, no, there will be a resurrection. Kind of Daniel chapter 12 talks about the resurrection unto eternal life or unto eternal death. And so that's the first place we see in the whole Bible, actually, the zoe aeonion, which is like the Greek phrase for eternal life, appear in the Hebrew. And that's the main phrase that John quotes all the time is from Daniel chapter 12, Verses three and four that Zoe and Aeonion, eternal life. And so Well, I want to come back to the eternal death part, but I, I just think that man, that is so significant. Is that you know, the people in Jesus and Paul's day thought about the resurrection, capital R resurrection is everybody. Part of what made the gospel hard to believe was nobody had a category that one person would rise from the dead and everyone else wouldn't. They and kind of assumed it all it's an all or nothing, it all happens at once. And yet when you read First Corinthians fifteen, what you realizes Paul's not there just arguing for the resurrection of Jesus, but he's saying that the resurrection of Jesus is, he calls it the first fruits of the overall resurrection. 
that Jesus is kind of the preview of coming attraction for everyone who's in Christ. Part of what happens in the first century, which the Jews did not expect at all, was you have, they had a view that at the end there will be a resurrection of all people. But here what we have in Jesus' resurrection is a resurrection that's, it's like a premature resurrection. Like it, it comes ahead of the other ones, that the end of time has come into the middle of time. And so this overlap of the ages, that there still is this reign of sin and death, there still is uh, the, the decay and the decrepitness of the creation, but there's like this beacon of light and hope that's broken in, and this kingdom of God is moving forward and swelling towards the end of time when the eventual final resurrection will happen. And so Jesus being the marking of the end times. And so this is like, what do you call like Pauline eschatology? Is Paul's talking about how the end has come into the middle. And so we've been in the end times ever since Jesus rose from the dead in the way that Paul thought about these things. So this, uh, this space between our death and the new heavens and the new earth, well, that's what a lot of us call heaven. You called it paradise. That was Jesus' words from, I think, Luke 24. Is there another way to talk about that that you think would be more helpful just for our understanding of it? It's another way or is, to talk or is about it, it like, eh, who cares? It just Theologians call it the intermediate state because okay. it's the in-between state. Not to be confused with like a purgatory. Yeah, it's not purgatory. It's not judgment. Purgatory would be what for those who are? Purgatory is more of a Roman Catholic view where you are kind of atoning for, or not really atoning for, but you're uh, painfully dealing with the consequences of your sin. Uh, this bit of a waiting room. Uh, Catholic theologians debate what exactly it means. I've heard I've heard a Catholic priest talk about how if you took a block of wood and you drilled a bunch of holes in it, that's like sin. And what Jesus could have done is thrown that block of wood into the fire, but instead he takes that block of wood. So Jesus dies for your sin so you don't get thrown into the fire. But then purgatory is the painful process of getting all those holes clogged back up, like kind of putting the glue in and the sanding down and the trying to the work of returning that wood to its original state. And we reject that view of purgatory. Yeah. Why do we reject that? Because it's not taught. Hebrews 9, 27 says it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. There's not an intermediate state of judgment. There is either you are being going to eternal life or going to eternal death, and there is a final judgment in which the people who have gone to those places are judged particularly, but the mercy seat of Jesus is not, something that's like an ongoing prolonged healing process. Jesus makes all things new in the blink of an eye. Yeah, so one of the questions we'd gotten in the Ask Anything was when we go to heaven, does our judgment happen immediately or do we have to wait? Yeah, that's pretty debatable within the Reformed tradition and within evangelicalism as a whole. Uh, my view right now is that you are immediately judged as being in the blood of Jesus and you go to eternal life paradise right away. But there's like the final great, great white throne judgment that happens in the end when we're judged for our good works. We're not really judged according to our bad works. That's what I think the end of Revelation is talking about. So we're not in the intermediate heaven going, oh, no, oh, no. Will oh I or no. won't I? Will I or won't I? That meeting with the principal's coming. I'm so nervous. No, yeah. it's paradise. Yeah, it's paradise. It's more like waiting. For, like the, I know some buddies have corporate jobs, you know, and they're guaranteed a bonus. The question is just how much will it be? And I feel like the, the judgment for Christians will be kind of like that. We're guaranteed new creation. We're guaranteed eternal life with Jesus. Um, but there will be some measure of allotment of callings or things related to uh, how we've stewarded the gift of grace. Yeah. So there's death, life after death, life after life after death. Um, so life after life after death is our resurrected bodies. Resurrected, and, and renewed. recognizable, different, right? Like you, if Jesus is the paradigm for this, then you know, not everyone immediately went, oh, that's Jesus. But they also weren't like, like at some point they went, oh, that is Jesus. You know, so, so there's a new body there. One of the questions it's, it's we got. It's sort of like looking at baby pictures, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, like it's the same person, but I don't totally recognize them. Now that I know that it's there, like, so, so the continuity, discontinuity illustrations of it are kind of hard to come by. Yeah. You know, it will be our bodies made new, will be this world made new, but it will look and feel remarkably different because the presence of sin affects us in so many ways, both developmentally, cognitively, yeah. emotionally, and that all. What age? Way. What age body? I get this question a lot from people. What how old? Body? How old will I be? Like, will I? You know, for older people, they wonder, like, okay, I'm, you know, my body's kind of falling apart as I age. Man, it, will that be more like a 25 year old body? And then I think for people, especially people who've lost children, would go, 
when I meet my child again, will they be nine months old or will they have like kind of grown up? Like, what will that be like? Any insight there? Any answers? Totally speculative, but I, I would flinch towards something like a late twenties because aging's a product of the fall and aging's, I mean, there's a sense in which you're born and then you start aging, dying, you know? So the, the effects of anybody, time I hear somebody go like, ah, wait till you get 40 or ah, wait till you hit 32 or well, I'll wait till you, all those, I'll wait till you that have begun to set in. Cause I remember even like when I was 19, I was a youth leader. I think I was, and I went to six flags with a bunch of high school students and I pulled an all nighter, went on 75,000 roller coasters, basically ate popcorn and eggs all day and felt fine and felt nothing at 19. And then I did that again at 22 and felt like a total dumpster fire. <laughs> and I was like, even between, so maybe 19, so maybe, maybe 19. The, I don't know. Like the, the, the yeah. age at which you are in your peak, whatever mm. that was and different people peak differently. When it's it's interesting. A lot of people it, peaked in high school. Well, it's it's interesting though because in a way it almost doesn't matter, yeah. right? Because if you have a if you have a body that's made new and resurrected and indestructible, then it doesn't really matter if that body looks fifty or if it looks twenty or if it looks eighty. Like it, you know, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it would matter to us. But anyway, that's interesting. Yeah. So well, what about lo- this? A lot, this of those, was a, a lot of those really speculative heaven and questions. Uh, I just tend to say I don't know, but I know you won't be disappointed. Yeah. Here's another question that we got that's related to this is, will we have a body in that intermediate heaven? So this is pre-return of Christ, the capital R resurrection, right? You die right now, you go to paradise. Will you have a body there? Or is it, right? You said body and soul are separated. Do we get kind of like a, a temporary body? Yeah, I don't. Like so, a, you so know, like a, tr- like a loner car. When you uh, you know take your car into the shop and you're waiting for it, like do you get kind of a loner loner I, body or what? I I think your body's still in the ground, so you have a body. You're just not in it or not inhabiting it. Also, the just the Bible tells us basically nothing about the intermediate state besides it's called paradise and it's with the Lord. Yeah, the one passage that makes me wonder is um, at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus you know takes up Peter, James, and John. They're up there. And Elijah and Moses show up, mm-hmm. and they were somehow recognizable as Elijah and Moses. And it must have had bodies because Peter's going like, "Hey, we why don't we build three tents? Like this would be a great place to." So that's where you go. Like, well, they at least they had some sort of body that showed up pre the resurrection, whether that was a loner or you know how that works is kind of interesting. I, I wonder in light of all of your. Um, you know, all of your work over the last few years on just embodiedness. If you just kind of go like, man, I think this is Randy Alcorn's argument. And he has a really good book, uh, long. He deals with a lot of the speculative questions and, and really says like, hey, this is my best guess. He kind of argues that, if I remember correctly, that uh, a body is so integral to what it is to be human that paradise without some experience of a body wouldn't be paradise. It to, wouldn't be eaten. It, to think of your soul apart from a mind is pretty impossible. And to think of a person apart from a particular location, which would be a body. You know, if you think about like bodies of water or bodies in space, another way of talking about bodies is just a, th- a thing that's not somewhere else. Yeah. You know, there's a, that body of water is different from those other bodies of water. So even to be able to locate a consciousness would require some form of house, mm-hmm. or some form of tent or some form of storage something and so it's totally speculative but <laughs> sure. like trying to imagine a person or their consciousness apart from a located object or mm-hmm. physical tangible thing feels like philosophically impossible yeah like how could something be inside of nothing another common question that i'll get from people is um do my loved ones or you know those that you know, are in heaven, they're in that intermediate heaven waiting for the resurrection. Do they know what's going on here? Are they paying attention? Can they see me? Can they communicate with me somehow? Um, what's their kind of awareness of the goings on of earth? Um, any insight there? 
So Hebrews chapter 12 talks about being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And that's another one that the Roman Catholics tend to, tend to interpret as like the saints who are watching. That's why we, why they think, think we can pray to Mary and pray to these other folks is because these saints are engaged in participating. The way that I understand Roman, Hebrews chapter 12 is that those are witnesses to the gospel. Like we, we are in the faith surrounded to these, because we just went through Hebrews 11, which is like the hall, the hall of fame of faith mm-hmm. people. Look at all these faithful people. Look at their, and these people are all witnessing to Christ, witnessing to the faithfulness of Yahweh, witnessing to that, and we're surrounded by them. Like we have their books, we we live in their history, we're in their tradition, and so because of all these great witnesses to the faith, let us continue to press on. And so I don't think that this idea of being watched by the deceased, um, like even like we have some parables, like in Abraham's bosom, I think it's in Luke chapter sixteen. You have this idea, but it's a parable; it's not a real story. So I don't think that the deceased are engaged in looking on. I don't, at least I don't think the Bible really teaches that. I think there are, are hints and allusions to it. I do think that angels and demons are involved. Um, so it feels, again, it's one of those arguments yeah. from silence. Yeah. No, it is. I, I, again, Randy Alcorn, his argument would be that Jesus so cares about what's going on on the earth and that, it, you know, that what's happening in our lives is so important to him and that Jesus is clearly engaged and cl- clearly paying attention and clearly watching that he kind of goes, it seems it would seem odd if people in heaven were like totally didn't care about the things that Jesus cared a lot about. So he, he would argue that there is some kind of like ability for that, but whether that's like, Hey, uh, come over to this portal and look at what's going on in Seth's life or right today. I'm wearing this sweatshirt, change lives, change lives. And on the back, you know, it says founding pastor Tom Schrader and it's the saying of Tom's and Tom was this friend and mentor and he's with the Lord now. And, and I do often wonder like, does he ever see what's going on? Like, does he ever see what he left behind and, you know, notice it? You know, I think about that with my grandparents, that sort of thing. So there's this part of you that wants that to be true. I remember when I, um, watched, uh, oh gosh, what is that movie? That Disney movie. It's really good. Um, Oh, that one? No. Toy Story? <laughs> no, well, the Toy Story is really good, too. Speaking of crying, that makes me cry every time. Um, no, Coco. Coco. Have you ever seen Coco? No. Oh, man. It is so good. But it's about um, kind of Mex- Mexico and Dia de los Muertos and um, this idea that, that, that there's this one day where the ancestors will kind of come back in spirit if they're remembered. And um, it's such a good movie that you wish it was true, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's, you know. It kind is. of interesting. So so I want there to be some kind of way for people. And yet I'm also scared of that. There's other times when I'm doing really dumb stuff and I'm going, well, I hope no one saw that. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, that's kind which of interesting. Is, which thing. is funny. You're like, I don't want grandma to see that. <laughs> but I right. don't really care if Jesus sees it. <laughs> right. God most high, the, the author of life. Right. You know, I'd be more embarrassed if grandma saw that than if... If, uh, that is insightful. God most high. Self. What about someone did ask about? Is there any way that the dead communicate with us? So the Bible throughout the Old Testament really forbids necromancy, which is like visitation of spirits, witchcraft, yeah. to some degree, hinting at um, at least the old the Jews were tempted to attempt to do that. Whether it succeeded or functioned or not is another question. But all over the Old Testament, there's these. Um, bands of trying to do it. Hmm. So whether they can or they can't, we shouldn't. Yeah. Is is the thrust of Yeah, we shouldn't be trying to find a medium or a div- diviner yeah. to try to do that. Yeah, I do think that I have talked to some people who think that uh, who I'm not saying they think this. They've been confused because someone that they loved like appeared in a dream mm. and said things to them. Yeah. And they're going, "What?" You know, dreams, you know, to some degree, I think it's just neurons firing. On another degree, I think God communicates through dreams sometimes, like Acts chapter 2, you know, the uh, and those types of things. Joel 2, you know, there's these people dreaming dreams. Was it them, Hmm. you know, or was it God using, like, their their image to communicate to me, or was it just a dream? Yeah. And I tend to say, I don't know. Yeah. Well, another, um, so another book by Randy Alcorn, um, is called in light of eternity. It's a short little one. It's got these little kind of short chapters. And one of them is he, uh, Randy is writing this letter to a guy who's on death row and he's become a Christian, uh, after his crime. And he's, you know, now gonna, he's, 
he's sentenced and here's when he's going to die. And he writes him this letter. Apparently this inmate had uh, read some of Alcorn's books and been really moved by them. And so Alcorn communicates to him. And, and one of the things he says um, is he says, Hey, the day that you're scheduled to die is my dad's birthday. So when you get to heaven, would you wish him a happy birthday for me? Wow. And I don't know when I read that, that was so moving to me. Partly because I think uh, we talk about heaven and it sort of feels pretend and it sort of feels out there and it feels like, yeah, well, I I hope it's true, you know. (laughs) But I thought like the level of certainty you'd have to have to tell someone, hey, you're about to die. Will you say happy birthday to my dad for me that day? Like, that is like, I believe in heaven. (laughs) Like, this is real. Um, And yet he wasn't praying. He wasn't going, hey, I'm going to pray to my dad on that day and wish him happy birthday. But I thought, man, that is such an interesting. So that idea of like, yeah, we can't, they, they aren't communicating to us. But, you know, I sometimes pray and I say, Lord, would you tell so-and-so this for me? You know, and I hope he does, you know. But to your point earlier, I think we can, in a way, sort of be more in love with our ancient relatives than Jesus. Right? Just yeah. something to avoid. Well, I think a lot of these questions, there's really two things that have to happen in our hearts. One is we have to make peace with how little information God gave us about some of these things and trust that for some reason he had wisdom in doing that. Like he could have wrote a whole nother book on what exactly heaven's going to be like, but he chose not to. And there's something to that, that that could be misplaced energy that could be unfruitful looking forwards, things Mm. like that. Well, I want to ask more about, I I still want to come back to hell, but before we do that, let's do a couple more kind of, quick questions that we got during uh, the ask anything. Great. Yeah. One was um, how would you counsel somebody who's a Christian who's considering cremation? Any thoughts on that? So historically pagans burned their dead and Christians buried their dead. The witness was that direction. And so the, the function of the action being a witness to the future resurrection is a big deal in Christian church history that Pagans believe nothing happened when you die, so they burn their bodies because there is no dignity of the body. There is just dignity of the soul, right? Because you'd have this, the soul was just trapped in the body, and finally they died, the soul's free, and the body can just get burned. Whereas Jews and Christians historically have put a huge emphasis on burials rather than cremations because— Even old churches, right, have a lot of yeah, burial grounds. Yeah, we were just in London a couple months ago, and— this old church that was like planted in 1215 or something like that. Maybe it was not exactly that, yeah. but they're like, welcome. It's our, yeah, we're, we're just doing our what 13th anniversary. Something yeah, like that. Right, like, yeah. We're doing our 800th anniversary. Right. And oh my holy yeah. smokes. And there's this, um, they still have space for folks to be buried on their property. Yeah. Right. And it was kind of a cool deal. You walk into this church building it's actually St. Church. And on the front end, there's a baptismal where they did baptisms mm. And then there was the worship service center or the box. And on the other end was the, was the, uh, the, the door to the cemetery, the door to the cemetery. Yeah. And so it was like, you're born, yep. you worship and then you die. And yeah. it was like the structure, the architecture of it. Yeah. And that's just historically been a big part that there. So a lot of people who, who pursue cremation though, it's like, Hey, this will be cheaper. This will be con- more convenient for my family. It'll be less hassle. They aren't going to have to pick out a this and a that. Um, and would you go so far as to say, hey, that would be sinful to do that? Like Christians should not be cremated? I don't want to go that far. I I don't think the scriptures forbid it, and so I don't want to bind the conscience of people. Yeah. But I do think Christians should consider what they're bearing witness to and how they choose to be interred, whether it's cremation or resurrection. Uh, a lot of times we bear witness to convenience and economics, not to future resurrection. And so I think it's worth pondering and thinking about and talking about with loved ones because we're, we are the minority in our current American view as Christians historically with our comfortability with cremation. Yeah. Historically, the church would think that we're kind of nuts. Yeah. Okay, another question is, um, do dogs, this person said dogs, I think you could say any animals or pets, do dogs have souls or go to heaven? So even the idea of having a soul, right? So God breathed in Adam and he became alive. Uh, the word means throat or nefesh. It means alive, to be alive, to be dead. 
And I don't see anywhere in scripture that hints at the soul belonging to an animal. Like there's personality, personification of animals. So will there be animals in the new heavens and the new earth? Yeah, I think there will be. I just don't think there'll be our animals. Okay. I think that Well, Jesus is coming back on a horse. Yeah, so at least So at one, least he has an animal. At least one animal. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think it was a Betsy from down the street. I think in the new creation there's all things are made new. And so death is undone, there's reversals. If we think that the best picture we have of the new creation is Eden, so mm-hmm. it'll be like Eden but developed without sin, which is hard to fathom, but that's what it'll be like. But I don't see an argument for these idea of animals having souls. Cause then you have to kind of have this like sliding scale of, okay, well dogs have this much personality, but that dog's pretty dumb. So this dog has six eighths of a soul, but this dog has right. four, four eighths of a soul. Well, and if you go like, well, human beings have full souls, <laughs> like we are embodied souls. And yet, uh, not all human beings go to heaven, right? We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So that takes us to kind of where we've been headed. So you know, we said heaven, hell, death, judgment. Let's talk about the, the judgment, the hell part. So um, we kind of told the story. Here's what happens chronologically uh, for those who are in Christ, right? Death, life after death, life after life after death. Um, what's the story for those who are not in Christ, for those who you know, die in their sins, have not trusted Jesus, uh, whether that's through active rebellion and hatred of God or just indifference? What's that look like? If you think about how the story for regenerated people or people who have new hearts from by the Spirit is heaven and new, then new creation, um, then you kind of see the thrust of the way it functions and for folks who reject Christ is hell and then lake of fire or two different types of hell. Like there's Gehenna, which is like a metaphor that Jesus uses, that Gehenna was like the place outside the city where the trash was burned and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's It's separate from the city and so God has a kingdom and he has a city and those who trust in Jesus as king and as savior which are kind of synonyms in the first century they are in the kingdom and those who don't want to be in the kingdom uh, are outside of the city in Gehenna the place of burning and weeping and gnashing of teeth that's where the idea of eternal conscious torment comes from is Jesus's own words and it kind of shatters some of like our illusions about Jesus and how we think about him this he talks about hell more than anybody else like it's mentioned a couple of times in the old testament like I talked about daniel chapter 12 jesus talks about it more than any other person in the scriptures and then paul talks about it intermittently in the book of revelation and john talks about it some more but it's it's not a positive place it's if you think about god's presence as being two senses there's his blessed presence and his um, omnipresence his omnipresence is the sense in which god is everywhere his blessed presence is the sense in which he's there like personally relationally and so hell is a separation from God's blessed presence, right? He is he is still present in hell as judge, mm-hmm. but he's not blessedly present there. Yeah, it's Second Thessalonians one talks about that away from the presence of the Lord. Yeah, is what judgment is. Yeah, and so C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says there's only two people: one who on the who say to Jesus, "Thy will be done," or those who on the last day Jesus says to them, "Thy will be done," meaning you don't want me, you don't give me. And so people who go into hell have chosen that way because they've chosen, I don't want God. And he says, okay, then now I'm separating you from my blessed presence. And so, so what's, what's our best understanding from the scriptures of what hell is like, right? Sometimes people sort of imagine it. It's this big barbecue with a bunch of sinners and, and, uh, you know, and the devil in hell and they go like, Hey man, if, if all those people are in heaven, I don't want to be there. You know, I'll go to hell with my buddies. Uh, what's it like? Is it, yeah. Again, the closest thing we see, remember we talked about how uh, in Jesus in the Christ event, the end breaks into the middle. And when Jesus is on the cross and he's suffering for us and he's in agony and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of what we understand is that in that moment, the blessed presence of God is removed from the son Jesus. Mm. And he's suffering because for the first time in his life, he's experiencing distance from the Father. And it's torturous to not be close to the Father. Because even now on earth, even though there's hellish things all around, there's a sense in which we are still receivers of the covenant of grace and receivers of common grace that 
that the sun still shines on the unrighteous, that the rain still falls on the unrepentant. And we as a society benefit from that all the time. And so even if we've lived the worst life on earth possible, we have still to somewhat had food, water, clothing, etc. But hell will be the removal of all of the provisions of grace and it will be a removal of the blessed presence of God. And so the even we see, look at Jesus as he's suffering and dying for our sins, that's a picture of yeah. what hell is like. It is. Will there be literal fire? So again, theologian N.T. Wright really like, he got asked this question and said like, do you think that the fire in, in the New Testament is literal for hell? And he says, oh no, I think it's a metaphor. And like the whole room goes like, oh, whew. Sigh of relief. And he says, for something much worse than fire. And it was like the auction went out of the room again because fire is just a picture of what hurts the most. And Gehenna is a metaphor for what separation from God will be like being put outside the city. And I, and again, it's God's metaphor, so it's a good metaphor. It's as faithful a metaphor as we can probably get. But I think human imagination, like Jesus on the cross wasn't burning, but in a sense he was burning. Now, another question that comes up, because a number of theologians, I think John Stott was in this category, maybe even uh, C.S. Lewis, who you mentioned, I think, are in kind of a annihilation approach, which is to say there is judgment, but at some point it ends. Mm-hmm. You know, the fire kind of burns out. Um, but the traditional uh, view throughout history has been eternal conscious torment in hell. Yeah. It's this fire that never goes out, this, that's never quenched. Um, how do you see that? So Jesus, in one of his exhortations, tells his disciples, don't fear the one who can only destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul, which is where annihilationists kind of understand the idea of Jesus can destroy soul, so that's you're annihilated, maybe in judgment. You're not necessarily um, consciously separated, dealing with the pain of separation from God your, the rest of your existence. And so it's, you don't have to be stupid to hold that position. Yeah, and a handful of very smart people have held that position. What I'd be nervous about is this is the way we. I was thinking about the news the other day, and you know whether it's like vaccines or masks or heaven or hell, and we tend to kind of think like, well, there's good people on both sides, so I'm just gonna go ahead and do what I want. (laughs) Yeah, there's a smart person over there, a smart person over there, so I'll just do the one that I want, and that's not really how to make good decisions. Yeah. And it's definitely not how to interpret scripture. Not how to interpret scripture, right? Oh, there's a guy with a doctorate over there, a guy with a doctorate over there. Well, I like that one, so yeah. that one's true for me. Yeah. And his, historically, especially when you look at uh, the way that we talk about everlasting life, so it's Daniel chapter 12, uh, those in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, hmm. or everlasting death is another way it could be translated, or everlasting separation, that the term everlasting applies to both the life and to the death. Yeah, it's a parallel thing. Yeah. So if one's if one's temporary, then the other one is too. Yeah, otherwise you just get some life after death, not eternal life after death or some so if you're going to think about so even like Rob Bell does this in his book, um Love Wins, he argues that hell's not eternal. And he says, Well the word everlasting that English Bibles is the word aeonion, which could mean age or season. It's like, okay. But that means that heaven's also not eternal. And so you have a whole different set of questions. So we can't say that one of those everlastings means everlasting. One of those everlastings means a season that makes sense to us. Yeah. So they're they're in parallel. So it's it's eternal. This is one of those things too. Especially there's a variety of doctrines that I read in the scriptures that I see and I believe the scriptures teach them that I don't necessarily emotionally jive with. Mm -hmm. I'm not excited about it. And well, well, that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Is um. You know, you know people who die apart from Christ. I do too. We've done, we've officiated those funerals before. Um, you know, for a lot of people listening, that thought is, it's unbearable. You know, how can I? Man. And it should be unbearable. I don't think there's anything wrong with that thought being unbearable. Like I think, understanding how terrible that sounds and not liking it is okay. I do think that even when I preach funerals where on the outside it seems pretty obvious that someone died apart from Christ, the reality is only the Lord judges hearts and only the Lord knows for certain. Yeah. 
because sometimes sometimes we don't even judge our own hearts correctly, much less somebody else's heart. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really ever like we can talk about fruit and assurance and who who we want to say like no I think you really know Jesus and I know this based on X Y and Z. But part of it is I have to go back to go. Even think about like the uproars in our current criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. It's like how often do they get it right versus not right? Yeah. And those are like things we have video cameras for. Yeah, and it's still hard. It's still hard to judge. Much well, less so, a heart. So let me ask you this then, because I, I think a, a real significant question is, um, as it relates to judgment and God's judgment, like people will go, okay, I get how Hitler, I get how Jeffrey Dahmer, how serial killer X, you know, I get how there's eternal hell for them. But you're telling me that this person who was just a good old boy, like he was a nice guy. He'd fix your car for you. He'd help you out with stuff. He raised a good family, worked hard, had a nice life, like never really hurt anybody. That guy's also going to hell forever. Like what? How's that fair? This is the distinction that's really helpful is one, all sins equally damning, but it's not all equally damaging. And so not all sin is the same and not all sin is judged the same and not all sin is equally damaging, right? Like it's, you can commit lust in your heart versus looking at pornography versus looking at pornography every day for a year versus having an affair versus having 10 affairs versus like they're like, those are all damning sins. God hates them all, but there are different degrees of damaging horizontally and so we tend to try to judge sins based on how damaging they are based on our assessment of harm and our assessment of things and so we'll look at someone and go okay luke simmons yeah he's a sinner but how much damage has he caused and i'll judge how bad of a sinner you are based on the damage done and that's like our horizontal measure whereas with god we're looking at the holy one who commits no faults and how the ultimate sin like people don't even really go to hell for sins in general ultimately functionally they go to hell for disbelief in jesus right it's it's deciding that you can be your own god that i'm the king of my life that i'm the lord of my life that i'm the creator of my life that god created me but i can live without reference to him for forever and so it's this supreme uh, irreverence or disregard or living without reference to the creator one but what about like man, I grew up in Iran or I grew up in Turkey and like I, no one's ever told me about Jesus and I'm as faithful as I can be to Allah and I am making the pilgrimage and I'm giving the alms and I'm like doing my best, man. Like I'm not trying to live for myself. I'm trying to live for God, but I just, no one told me about the right God. Yeah, this is where Romans 1, we talked about this in a couple episodes ago, I think talking about how Knowing God, whereas Romans 121, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And he talks about how right before that, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. And so God has made himself known to people in his creation. And even in that sense, doing the good religious things is a way of staying in control. I'm taking responsibility for my eternity. And saying, I'm going to remain in control of my life, I'm going to remain in the driver's seat of my life, is a way of actually avoiding God and avoiding his, our need for grace. That a lot of times Christians even can think this way. You're going, I can't wait to stop sinning less, not so that I can please the Lord and have intimacy with him, but so that I can be less dependent on grace and be less needing of forgiveness. Yeah. And so working a religious system really hard does not necessarily make you a good person. It just makes you a tryhard. And the goal of life that God has created us for is not to try hard, really hard to be moral, but it's to have intimacy with him and walk with him and receive his blessedness and his grace and his mercy and, and to walk in the path he set out for us. So we tend to misunderstand even that the goal of life is not to be moral per se, but ethics and morality end up flowing out of a life lived with God and connection to him. And so the relational God desires relationships, not just moral submission and yeah. I think that's kind of where we miss out that ultimately when you have a God who creates us to be in relationship with him, that, that the ultimate sin is to say, I don't want that. Yeah. Well, and I think this is, I mean, it may seem real obvious, but like this is why missions matters. This is why sharing the gospel with people matters. 
That's why inviting people to church and praying for folks like people need to know. Like, how will they believe without someone telling them? How, Absolutely. You know, how will they be told unless someone sends them, right? There's this whole chain of mission that has to take place. Tell me this. Are there different degrees of reward in heaven, different degrees of punishment in hell? Uh, I think so, but I couldn't really tell you why. So I think so, too. Um, Maybe you could tell us why. I, I, well, I, I grew up being told that. Yeah. And I think it's true. And I think in the judgment, I think I mentioned this earlier, we are judged for our how we stewarded grace. Yeah. And I do think that it's kind of like the metaphor I was taught in seminary. And again, I don't have a verse for off the top of my head is like, if there's a campfire, the closer you get, the hotter it is, you, the further you get, the cooler it gets. Likewise, if you're a concert, you, know, you, yeah. you, you can have front row seats and you can be in the back row, but everyone's happy. Yeah. Well, I think about it on the reward side because I think it's, it's either first Corinthians three or four where Paul talks about that in the end, our work will be judged for what it was built on. Some build with wood, hay and stubble, some with, you know, gold and precious stones. And that it seems like the, the judgment in this judgment of what's good, that there's greater reward for, um, you know, doing work that God more thinks is valuable. So, um, that seems like that. On the judgment side, I think about where Jesus um, pronounces woes on certain cities. And he says it would be, you know, it'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. Because, you know, the Son of Man showed up here and you rejected him. Yeah. You know, that maybe that's just a turn of phrase. You know, maybe that's just a way of Jesus saying like, hey, you're in really big trouble. <laughs> but I see that as potentially like going, hey, no, if you had more revelation, you're more accountable. Um you know, your sins are potentially more serious and potentially that affects, you know, the, the sense in which God's judgment. But, but I would go back and go, I'm not sure that we can figure out the metric God uses. I think we just go, he's just, he's right, he's good. He, he will sort that out. One question we got in the Ask Anything was um, about Judas. Do you think Judas went to heaven or hell? Uh, definitely not. He didn't go to either place? Yeah. No, he didn't. Yeah. He was the only one who's annihilated in my view. No, John, you're, you're kidding about that. Just yeah, to be clear. Yeah, just kidding. Yeah. John 17 describes him as the son of perdition, which perdition has to do with hell. Yeah. That, and I think he could even be described as the type of person who in Hebrews six is, we're warned about someone who is like so close and has tasted this gift, but ultimately chose idols over God. Mm-hmm. Right. That, he he shared in the work. He had in, he was close to Jesus literally, mm-hmm. and he's still decided that money was better. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of Matthew seven, where Jesus says, "You know, there will be people who did incredible things for me, but they'll be marked by the evil that they actually were also doing continually. They'll be evil doers." He calls them, and he says, "You know, I'll say away from me. I never knew you." Um. You know, eventually a tree is known by its fruit. And you might have a lot of good things you did, but if there's also a kind of ongoing unrepentant evil in you, then you don't really know Christ. So this is a lot of uh, interesting, uh, some of it speculative, some of it not. um, But but I'm curious, Seth, as we kind of wrap this up, is there any kind of last, you know, hey, as we think about heaven, hell, death, judgment, um, any last exhortation, you know, things that, you know, as, as we think about, you know, how should this affect our lives? What should, what do you want us to take away from this conversation? There are really two things I end up coming back to when I'm pastoring people all the time. One is you don't need to be worried. You'll, you won't be disappointed that God is good. Heaven is going to be paradise, but the details of it, like, don't worry about it. It's kind of like if you planned a really good date night and your wife's drilling you on details and you're like, just experience it. Don't <laughs> yeah. like, let's just experience it when we get there. Don't like, trust me with the details. I, mm. I feel like that's kind of how God treats us with, heaven and hell. And the two thing is the one that comes back to a ton is that continuity, discontinuity tension that it will be this and it will be better and it'll be different yeah. and it will be this. And just having to deal with that is a lot where we go on. I do think that a great book, if someone wants to dive in deeper on some of the stuff is surprised by hope by NT, right? Mm, okay. It was really helpful. Yeah. Well, we'll put a link to that. We'll put a link to the Randy Alcorn book. That surprised by hope is a really great book, especially yeah. about the life after life after death. Yeah, especially if you kind of grew up thinking that you you die, go to heaven, the end of story. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be a great way to add the conclusion to your chapter. Like yeah. uh, 
I, I've heard it said before. We'll also put in a, a link to that Heaven and Hell video that Bible Project that's does. That's really good, yeah. I think it's a really helpful visual for this thing. I've heard it said that a lot of Christians grow up. And Heaven and Earth, it's called. Yeah, a lot of Christians grow up, and their Bible begins in Genesis 3, which is mm. the fall. Yep. And their Bible ends in Revelation 20, which is the judgment. But you got to add on Genesis 1 and 2, which is about the goodness of creation and embodied life. And you got to add on Revelation 21, which is about all things being made new. Yeah. And so some folks listening might have Genesis 1 and 2 functionally chopped off their view because they go like, oh, life is, you're a sinner, Jesus died for you, and you can go to heaven. Uh, but that actually cuts off part one and the last part of the Bible story. So I thought we were over, but I just thought of one more question. Okay. Um, I think that the, the life after life after death story is way better than just life after death. Like, I think the whole Bible, including Genesis 1 and 2 and the end of Revelation, like, it's that's a better story. Historically, how did we get so off on this? Like, how did that happen that so many Christians misunderstand this and think that heaven when you die is the end of the story? How'd that happen? There's a long tradition of misunderstanding that that goes back to as early as the 2nd and 3rd century that Platonic influence, because Plato didn't have a high view of the body or high view of creation, that Platonism bled into Christianity um, all the way in through Augustine. More recently, you had... So we would go, like, that is an attractive story, but you're saying early on in the church's history, there were a lot of people influenced by Plato who would have said, that's not an attractive story. Yeah, I, don't like, want to, I don't have a body. That's gross. This oozing, bleeding, suffering bag of bones yeah. pass. Right? Okay. And, and Plato had a ton of influence for a long time, and a lot of different philosophers did. All the way in through Descartes, who taught, I think, therefore I am. So right. he thought that to be human was to have thoughts, not to have bodies. And then you have like more kind of modern Tim LaHaye dispensationalism stuff where like the Jesus is going to come back and zap us out of our bodies at the end. Uh, it's just popular art, literature, yep. things like that. I think um, especially in places where there's a lot of suffering, escape from the body sounds really great. Mm. And so I have some empathy for it even though I think that's not what the Bible teaches. Yeah. But, man, if you are suffering mostly or exclusively. Yeah. And well, and I think, like, if, if I mean, Paul says it, like, a part of me really wants to get out of this yeah. thing and go be with Jesus. Like, he wasn't kidding. Like, that's better than this. But what I want to say, and I think he would say, what the Scripture declares is that the end of the story is even better than that. Yeah. And so we just don't want to stop there, so. Well, this has been, um, yeah, helpful, sobering, um, a lot of interesting things, and I appreciate your thought, and uh, yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, thanks, Luke. All right, everybody. Well, that's it for today. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, it's been fun over these last uh, few months. I've gotten a chance to preach at some other redemption congregations, and so uh, I've heard of a few of you who listen from other places. It's cool that you're joining us as well. But um, yeah, we hope you have a great day, and we'll see you later.